Well, welcome to RUF. Um, what a great night. This is just encouraging for me. And so uh, let me say this. We have got to go somewhere in the fall. And so if you like this and want to see this be a more regular spot for us to meet, please give me feedback. Give someone feedback. Um, and maybe we'll even meet here a couple of more times this semester uh, and then permanently in the fall. So um, give us your feedback. We, we're going somewhere, and if you all like this, then maybe, maybe it'll be here. If you have your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, look on with someone. One announcement, again, we're going to be back in the flag colonnade next week. Uh, and so this is kind of a trial run. And just going to see how this goes. And so we'll be back in flag colonnade next week. And then we'll, we'll see from there. James chapter 3, as you're turning to that passage, let me ask, start with this question. How intense is your struggle to control your tongue? To control the words that come out of your mouth. Jay Rassman was hunting deer in a wildlife preserve in Northern California. And he came to this rocky ledge that he had to climb. And as his head got just above the ledge, he sensed some movement to the right of his face. And a coiled rattlesnake at that moment struck with lightning speed, just missing Rassman's ear. The force of the strike caused the snake to land on his left shoulder. And the, the fangs from the snake got snagged in the wool turtleneck sweater that he was wearing. The snake then began to coil around Jay Rassman's neck. As you can imagine, he's freaking out at this moment. And so he takes his right hand and he reaches behind his head and he grabs the snake around the neck and when he does, he said he could feel the warm venom streaming down his back. He falls back head first down the side of the ledge through brush and lava rocks. His rifle and binocular were bouncing down beside him. He says later, as luck would have it, he found himself lodged with his, heat, his feet uphill from his head. And he said he could barely move. But he managed to wiggle free just enough to get his rifle and disengage the snake's fangs from the wool turtleneck sweater that he was wearing. He said that that was actually a bad move because that gave the snake enough leverage to strike again. And so the snake struck again and made about eight attempts at Rassman's face, hitting him four times just below the eye. He said that this snake and I were eyeball to eyeball for close to 20 minutes. And he said that he discovered something about snakes that day. They don't blink. He said after the 20-minute trial was up and he tried to toss the dead snake aside, he said he could barely, he had to take his, he couldn't pry his fingers loose from around the snake's neck. Does that story describe your struggle 
to tame your tongue. Well, you know, actually, our, our struggle to tame our tongue is nothing like that. You see, Jay Rassman's struggle lasted 20 minutes. Our struggle lasts a lifetime. Jay Rassman was only fighting a four-foot-long rattlesnake. I want to suggest tonight, because I think James suggested, that we are fighting something much more horrific, much more ugly than any rattlesnake. I think you'll see what I mean as we read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me as I read this very sobering passage from the book of James. This is God's word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also with the tongue, it is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, I'm not sure if there's a stronger passage in all of Scripture than the one we have just read. And there's really no way to sugarcoat it, uh, because James doesn't sugarcoat it. And so, Lord, I pray that um, you wouldn't allow me to sugarcoat it. Father, um, we need to be uh, convicted in how we use our words. Uh, Me being uh, the first uh, to confess for how I've used my tongue to destroy rather than build up and give life. I pray that you would uh, be at work through your spirit in our hearts so that we might be honest about our words, but that we would also run to Jesus for forgiveness and for life and for redemption uh, 
May he redeem our words tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words would never, will never hurt me. You know that because you've either said that as a young child or you have definitely heard it said, and you all know it's absolutely not true. Because you see, the truth is words do hurt, don't they? Words are very powerful. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, we live in a world of words. That's what we do as human beings. We talk. I don't know you all personally, but I know one thing about you, it, it, and it is that you talk. And words and our talk have become so casual, so mundane, so ordinary. And because of that... We treat our words so carelessly. We treat our words so flippantly. The Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't treat our words as ordinary or unimportant. I think it's pretty obvious from the passage. James, a holy writer of Scripture, thinks that they are a very big deal. The Bible does the opposite. It signs great value to our words. You were here a few weeks ago when we see James kind of teased us in chapter 1. If you remember in verse 26, he teased us by starting to talk about the tongue and then, and our words, and then it was kind of like, oh, wait, I can't get there yet. I got to wait till chapter 3 and unpack it. And so he unpacks it big time. And the reason why our words are such a big deal, think about it Genesis chapter 1, the very first words in the universe were not spoken by a human being. Who were they spoken by? They were spoken by God himself. And one of the ways you and I are created in the image of God as human beings is that we talk. Did you ever think about that? We use words. And so in our words, we are bearing God's image in a way. Words belong to God. And that is why our words are such a big deal. Still not convinced? Think about this. Think about the most important things in a person's life. Is there anything more exciting than when a child speaks their first words? You will all be married one day. Some of you are married. And... uh, And when you have children... When your kids start to speak their first words, you're pulling out the video camera and you are sending that video to everybody. You're posting it on Facebook. You're doing everything. You're showing your family because words are a big deal. What is more exciting than when a child speaks their first words or a person speaks their first words? But what is sadder than when a human being goes silent? You ever think about that? I have a friend who lost her father back in September. And when she blogs about her father's death, you want to know the first thing she talks about? The day he went silent and could no longer talk. The day he went silent and could no longer say the words, I love you. 
What is sadder than sitting with someone who does nothing but weep over the horrible things that have been said about them? And they weep as if it happened yesterday. You see, our words are a very important dimension of our lives. In James chapter 3, he says our words are an important aspect of our faith. James here is saying basically that our words are an action. Think about the context with me, okay? If you've been here in our study, look back in chapter 2. If you were here last week, faith apart from works is dead. Remember, in the original text, they didn't have these chapter divisions. They didn't have verse divisions. They didn't have these headings that say taming of the tongue. It would read like a letter. The translators have put that in for us to help us. And yes, it's helpful. But if we're reading this in context, James says, faith without works is dead. And the first thing he talks about as far as our works is what? in working out our faith, is our words. He's saying that our words are works. In other words, our words and what comes out of our mouth reveals or proves our faith. Remember James chapter 1, if anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, his religion is worthless. So what does the Bible say about our tongue? Specifically, what does this passage say? Well, three things. If you're a note taker, you have an outline. Our words are powerful. Our words reveal our hearts. And our words show us our need for Jesus. First of all, our words are powerful. Look at verses 3 through 5. James is using three illustrations here to talk about the power of the tongue. The horse's bit, the ship's rudder, and the fire among the trees. What's his point? His point is simply this, to show us that through this itty-bitty muscle in our mouth, we can control very large things. Through this itty-bitty muscle in our mouth, he is saying it has a tremendous power to control things and to set on fire a person's life. The Proverbs, if you've read it, talks a lot about our words and what comes out of our mouth. Anybody heard of the message translation? Eugene Peterson uh, translates the message in kind of everyday language, and he translates one of the Proverbs like this. Words kill. Words give life. They are either poison or they are fruit. You choose. He is saying that our words are either destructive and they destroy people or they encourage and they give life. It doesn't take long to read to see what James is focusing on. James here is obviously dwelling on the destructive power of our words. James doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about our words. Look at verses 6 and 8, if you uh, still aren't convinced. He talks about the character of our speech. And what does he say about our speech? That it's towards unrighteousness. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil, he says. 
Then he talks about the influence of our speech. And he says that our words stain all they touch. The tongue corrupts the whole person. He goes on and touches on the continuation of that influence. And what he is saying is we don't just grow out of this like we do other sins. He said it sets the whole course of a person's life on fire. And then to top it all off, he saves the best for last or the strongest for last. And he talks about the affiliation of our tongue. And look at what he says about the affiliation of our tongue. Let me sum it up. Our tongue is actually pro-Satan and anti-God. Look at the passage. It, set, it is set on fire by hell. And then he wraps it all up with this statement. Our tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Needless to say, James is talking about the negative use of our tongue. But he doesn't stop. I wish he did. Look at verse 9. With our words, we curse the image of God. That is why it is such a big deal. When we use our words to destroy other people, because when we do, we are tearing down, is what James is saying, the image of God. Here's what it means. It is never okay to gossip. It is never okay to use harsh words, slanderous words, malicious words, proud words, unloving words, ungracious words. It is not okay. What James is saying here is that we, when we use our words to destroy people, we are destroying the image of God. It can be so sweet, can it? To cut someone down and to make fun of them when they're not around. And James says that our sin, sinful, careless words actually dehumanize people. Do you ever think about that? If someone's created in the image of God and we tear them down, we are making them less than human. But we don't get it. I don't get it. We don't see our words as venom that sets the entire course of life on hell. And so you know what we do? You know what I do? It's not that big a deal. Come on. Jason, I mean, give me a break. It's surely it's okay if I gossip every now and then. Or we say things like, well, yes, I said some things I regretted to my mom and to my dad and to my siblings and to my friends, but I was exhausted. I was tired. They know that. And so they'll forgive me. Or we say things like, I know I was ugly to this girl on my hall, but I think she knows that I care about her. You see, James says that our words have been invested with power and that they often do destroy other people. 
You know, I don't have to convince some of you of this. Because some of you know firsthand that words have a long shelf life. You know firsthand that careless words can crush a person's faith. They can damage their hopes and destroy their identity. And so how are these things showing up in your lives tonight? How are you using your words? Are you destroying people with your words? Are you giving life to people with your words? You see, James says that our words always have direction and always have power. They're always leaving some kind of harvest. And so my question is, what kind of harvest are your words leaving? Are you given words of life? Are you given words of death? Words are powerful. Secondly, words reveal the heart. Look at verses 3 through 6. So we've talked about the bit and the rudder and the tongue. And all of these, if you read a close reading of the text, really reveals that there is something else assumed here. There is assumed that there, for the horse, there is a rider directing the horse with the bit. There assumes that there is a pilot guiding the the ship's rudder, which is therefore guiding the ship. The tongue, we see that the will of man is expressing itself through speech that guides action. And so here's the point. James agrees with Jesus that it is the heart that moves the tongue. Luke chapter 6, out of the overflow of our mouth, the heart speaks. In other words, that it is not, what comes out of my mouth is not caused by situations. It's not caused by my professor giving me a bad grade. It's not caused by my roommate. It is not caused by those on my hall. It is not caused by my RA. It's not caused by my friends or my parents or something outside of me. It is caused by the way my heart reacts to those things. Have you ever said something like this? You've said something you shouldn't and then came back and said, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to say that. Paul Tripp, he's a writer, he says it's actually more biblical to say, forgive me for saying what I meant. Because you see, if it wasn't in your heart, it would have never come out of your mouth. Because the Bible says that there is nothing that comes out of our mouth that wasn't in our heart in the first place. So what does this mean? Well, simply put, it means that word problems, you have trouble controlling your tongue, have trouble with expressing anger and gossip and slander and malicious words. Word problems are heart problems. They reveal something about the core of who you are. I heard a story, it's been several, a few years ago now, I think I've shared this before, there's a 31-year-old woman, Paige Benton Brown, who was actually an RUF intern at Vanderbilt University. She moved to Dallas after the internship. 
her uh, brother was a doctor. She was on Claritin or some medication like that, you know, she needed during allergy season. This is before it was over the counter. She moved and she, in the chaos of moving and transitioning, she didn't get a doctor. She calls her brother and says, can you write me a prescription for Claritin? Because I need some medication. She says, okay. He, he says, he agrees and says, but you really need to get a doctor. You need to let a doctor see you, uh, a, you know, a physician. They can write you the prescription. I'll do it this one time. Well, a couple of months later, she calls back. She says, I still haven't found a doctor. And so can you write me another prescription for Claritin? He reluctantly agrees to do that again and says, all right, I'll do it, but you really need to get a prescription. A year later, she calls again, still hasn't found a physician, and her brother's had it, says, no way, it's time for you to be a grown-up and go to the doctor. She hadn't been to the doctor in 10 years. Finally makes an appointment, goes to the doctor, and if you're a new patient, you get a physical. They've got to have a baseline on where your health is. And so she's talking with her physician, and as she's getting this physical, they're chatting, and he puts the stethoscope up to her heart, and he says, what is wrong with your heart? She says, what do you mean, what's wrong with my heart? There's nothing wrong with my heart. I came in for Claritin. Give me my prescription. He says, no, there's something seriously wrong with your heart. I'm making an appointment right now for you to see a, a cardiologist. She goes to the cardiologist that day, that afternoon. The nurse calls her back, and she says, the nurse hooks her up to this EKG machine. They're talking, chatting it up. What is wrong with your heart, the nurse says. She says, nothing's wrong with my heart. The doctor said, she said, the doctor's going to want to see you right away. Doctor comes in. He prescribes an ultrasound of her heart, a sleep monitor, and an EKG or a treadmill test. Prescribes all three of those. Come to find out. Her dead asleep, snoring, 3 a.m. in the morning, resting heart rate was 150 beats per minute. She comes back in, and the doctor says, you've got two choices. Your heart is in a really bad place, and you need help immediately. You can be on medication the rest of your life, or you can have surgery to correct the problem. And she's like, I came in for Claritin. And now you're telling me that I need heart surgery. She says, no, ma'am, you don't understand. You're in a very dangerous place with your heart. To which Paige Benton Brown replies, well, other than my heart, I'm healthy, right? The doctor laughed and said, ma'am, there is no health apart from your heart. You see, the same is true spiritually speaking. There is no health apart from our heart. To get more specific, there is no healthy speech and healthy words in control of our tongue apart for, from our heart being controlled by Jesus. Could it be tonight that the reason why you've never been able to get a handle on your words is because you've never gotten to the root? You've never really gotten to the main issue, which the Bible says is your heart. Our only hope for true change, our only hope 
to use our words in a healthy way is to stop trying harder, stop blaming other people, stop blaming our circumstances, and acknowledge maybe for the first time that the real problem is us. Are you willing tonight to confess that your greatest communication problem is you? You see, then and only then will we begin to talk differently. Words are powerful. Words reveal our hearts. And thirdly, and finally, words reveal our need for Jesus. James has showed us that our world of talk is a world of trouble. And I don't know about you, but as we read this passage, you know, one of the purposes that James uses this passage for is to show us our desperate need for Jesus. Do you see that? Please say you do. Because simply reading this passage, friends, makes me want to weep. It makes me want to weep for the things that have come out of my mouth. See, who among us tonight has not used our words to destroy Who among us has not used our words as a weapon of anger rather than an instrument of peace? Better yet tonight, which one of us is willing to put all of our words from the last week on this screen for all of us to see tonight? Any takers? I didn't think so. You know why? Look at verse 2. It takes a perfect man to raise his hand. So what is James doing then? Here's what James is doing. James is saying, you see your words? I'm going to show you your words and your tongue and what they're like because I want you to be emptied of hope in yourself. James, through this passage, is trying to give up, get us to give up hope in everything else. To give up hope in trying harder, to give up hope in new techniques, in strategies, to give up hope in everything but Jesus. He is our only hope if we are going to change the way we talk. Look at verses 7 and 8. Incredible. Look at verses 7 and 8. Mankind subdues every kind of animal, but what? It can't can't subdue them itself. Isn't that amazing? Here's what James is saying. Here's what is implied. No man can tame the tongue, but guess who can? God. You see, that's the implication. You can't do it. I can't do it. What is implied is the only way we're ever going to control our words is if our heart changes and if Jesus comes through His Spirit and works in our life. So what? So what's the point? Listen to your words. Are you listening to your words? And instead of letting your words lead you to despair, 
and leads you to discouragement. Let your words drive you to the foot of the cross where you can experience the forgiveness that you and myself included so desperately need. Here's what you find at the cross. If you go to the cross with your words, what we find is we find a savior. We find a redeemer there who has died for every careless word that you've ever said. For every careless word that you are saying now and that you ever will say in the future. And so what that means is that when we go to the cross, you don't have to be afraid to face the horror of your words. You see, Jesus is your rescuer. Jesus is your redeemer. And he longs to redeem your words. He really does. And he's the only one that can do it. The children's book, The Boy Who Loved Words. Anybody ever read that book? The Boy Who Loved Words. It's a story about a young Jewish boy named Selig. Selig collected words. His friends collected coins and stamps. But uh, Selig collected words. And he would collect words that came irresponsibly out of people's mouths. He would collect words that were in books and he would take all of his words and he would stuff them in his, the pockets of his pants and in the drawers in his room until one day, as you can imagine, his friends thought he was rather strange. And so they said, Salig, we've got a word for you. Oddball. Salig took that word too and put it in his pocket and kept it until one day Salig found out what that word meant. And he was very hurt, and he took all of his words, and he left the city. And when he left the city, he runs into a genie. And this genie tells him that his mission in life is to take all of his words and to use them for the good of his neighbor. And so Selig takes all of his words, and he puts them in a bag, and he marches right back into the heart of the city. And when he gets into the city, he would walk by a bakery and he would sprinkle words like super, delicious, fantastic. He would walk by two neighbors that were fighting and he would sprinkle words like love and peace and care and hush. So much so that the neighbors actually started loving one another and giving one another flowers. You see, as a result of Selig's words, relationships start to change. Businesses start to flourish. And a whole city is ultimately changed. And Selig is the hero. Selig is known as the boy who speaks the right words at the right time so that an entire city is healed. That's it. Did you see it? See, that's what we are called to do. We are called to be a people who take all of the words and move into our relationships 
move into our families and into our classrooms and into our residence halls and even right into the heart of the campus and speak life-giving words so that people flourish and so that places flourish. And by God's grace, that will begin to happen. Not only in our lives, but on this campus. Let's pray.